Raycash, a community advocate and law student on unceded Algonquin territory at the University of Ottawa. My name is Kim Pate, and I have the privilege and responsibility of being a senator in unceded, unsurrendered Algonquin Anishinaabek territory. And you're listening to Appointed. On this episode of Appointed, we're talking all about Bill C-83, the bill that the government says will end solitary confinement. This will be a shorter episode. Our goal is to offer an update of some of the most important work that Kim has recently been doing in the Senate to hold the government to account about a bill that doesn't quite do what it says it does. So Kim, can you give us a bit of a history on the bill? What's up with Bill C-83 and why are lawyers, advocates, and academics decrying Bill C-83 for not doing what it's supposed to? Well, first of all, Bill C-83 is the second bill that the government introduced to ostensibly to deal with the issues of segregation. Um, unlike C-59, which preceded it, which basically died on the order paper, Bill C-83 was, is so very clearly a response to the litigation that was being brought against the Correctional Service of Canada. Um, in particular, two cases, one in B.C., in, um, brought by the uh, B.C. Civil Liberties Association and the John Howard Society of Canada, and one in Ontario, brought by the Canadian Civil Liberties Association where they're challenging the use of segregation or solitary confinement in federal penitentiaries. The, the bill was introduced as a, uh, a billed as, no pun intended, as a way to get rid of segregation, that, that uh, Bill C-83 was going to end the use of segregation completely in Canada. Um, but really what it has done is renamed segregation to structured intervention units and taken away some of the existing, inadequate as they already are, procedural safeguards for prisoners. In its place, they plan to put in uh, a mechanism whereby uh, a, a body that is considered by Correctional Service of Canada to be independent, uh, a body of we don't know who yet, we don't know what their qualifications will be, all we know is that they are supposed to be appointed by the minister to review the cases of people who have been in segregation or in structured intervention units uh, for more than five days without getting access to uh, fresh air, meaningful co human contact, that sort of thing. But the only time they are actually mandated to see someone is after 90 days. So on cross-examination, the correctional employee, the correctional service manager, uh, Ms. Redpath, who's responsible for implementing structured intervention units, acknowledged that even if everything worked the way it was supposed to, so if after five days of someone not being outside of their cell or not getting uh, meaningful human contact or recreation or, you know, or, or showing mental, you know, signs of mental health issues, if immediately that was reported, she acknowledged that it would be probably at least 14 days before that body, the information would get to that body. So that would be relying on corrections to report everything, uh, to document everything, to report everything, to instigate a review. Now the reality is, we know from the situation of Ashley Smith, who died in uh, segregation, 
never having had the proper reviews she was supposed to have. We know from Matthew Hines' death, we know from the number of people who are kept in isolation, and the fact that these cases were brought in the first place, that in fact corrections has not historically been reliable and, and is not a, uh, an organization that we can count on to take responsibility, to report and be held accountable, and to be transparent in that way. So then the next phase would be that after 90 days, every person who is still in segregation, uh, their case is supposed to be reviewed. And so essentially, what has been put in place is a mechanism that relies on corrections to report on itself. If they don't, then the first review is after 90 days at which point all of the evidence shows much of the damage, the most severe, permanent, uh, you know, unalterable psychological, physical, physiological damage can occur. And so the UN, the United Nations has said anything more than 15 days is torture. If, the four, if 14 days is the first point, if everything works well, that this body would achieve it, then already within three days of this law coming into effect after it was enacted, already the courts are saying it still it doesn't fit the bill. And so we're in a situation where now the one of the cases has been appealed to the Supreme Court of Canada, the Ontario uh, Court of Appeal decision. Uh, the BC Court of Appeal decision may well be as well. So the Supreme Court of Canada will be ruling in and yet again even though the House of Commons had the opportunity to fix this, or the government had the opportunity to fix this, by accepting the amendments that the Senate brought in, they chose not to accept all of those amendments, including two crucial amendments. One was to have judicial oversight of uh, the placement of someone in segregation, and using what the courts had said in the BC Civil Liberties case, that that irreversible, irreparable damage can occur from segregation within a few hours and certainly within 48 hours. Uh, the Senate recommended that the cases, uh, that every person, that the Correctional Service of Canada have a responsibility every time they want, they want to put someone in segregation for more than 48 hours to go to court. So that was the judicial oversight piece. And two things the Senate committee that proposed that believed that uh, this would achieve would be one, uh, just having to go to court and putting the onus on corrections would mean that no longer is the onus on the prisoner who, locked in a cell, may not have access to anything to write with, a telephone, any of these things, and so it's not reliant on the prisoner to initiate something, but instead reliant on corrections to establish why it, uh, why it should be able to allow some, should be allowed to keep someone in segregation. So that was an important piece, and then the other was that it would be timely, and so, uh, Correction's response was to say, or the government's response was to say, that that would be untenable, that they, the numbers would be so great. They said that last year there were 5,000 people kept in segregation for more than two days. Uh, so 5,000 entries into segregation. Uh, we know that if in fact this kind of provision was put in place, the provision itself would start to change the culture of corrections. So they would, one, think more seriously about who they would be isolating, in what circumstances. There may very well be some circumstances where, for a short period of time, separating people or allowing uh, someone to be, to, you know, be set off from the rest of the general population might be deemed reasonable. 
but it would also ch start to change the culture to, to use segregation less and require that the courts, the bodies that are equ best equipped to weigh these kinds of decisions, could look at, provide due process, and ensure that, um, in fact, these are legitimate reasons, not just someone needs quiet time, you know, so they put them in segregation, or someone says they want to be, you know, they have mental health issues and they want to be separated or they're fearful or any of those things. Other mechanisms could be used to get people into the appropriate, either in another setting like a private family visiting unit or a mental health unit or out to a, a hospital in the community. And so um, that was one provision. The other was that where corrections uses segregation or other means that um, interfere with the, what the judge originally sentenced someone to, that in fact the courts could revisit sentences and shorten them or shorten parole and eligibility periods. So if, if someone like Ashley Smith was kept in segregation for an 11 and a half months, the judge who sentenced her or the respective judges who sentenced her over the years never intended her prison sentence to involve her being kept in isolation for her entire sentence. And so those kinds of cases should be being revisited where people are uh, placed in segregation for lengthy periods of time. There should be an ability to revisit those cases. So those were really two important amendments. Some other ones that were rejected were to um, to push the, the um, House of Commons, the government did accept that someone who comes into segregation should within 24 hours have a mental health assessment and that every prisoner should have a full uh, mental health assessment within 30 days. What they didn't approve though is the corollary um, amendment which was to say where there are clearly mental health issues or mental health issues develop because someone's in a isolation or other conditions of confinement, then Corrections has an obligation to get them out and into appropriate health care facility, uh, preferably run by the you know, province or territory in the community and fund those beds. That, the, that wasn't accepted, nor were the amendments that would have allowed um, greater access to community and culturally appropriate services for Indigenous prisoners, as well as black prisoners, trans folk, and basically uh, widening or opening up um, as the legislative intent was originally uh, articulated by the by the uh, House of Commons and the Senate back in the late um, 80s and early 90s when the Corrections and Conditional Release Act were first passed when it was seen to be a piece of human rights legislation aimed at reducing the numbers of people in prison. At that time, a particular focus was on Indigenous prisoners, but the subsections 81 and 84 that I'm speaking about um, both allow for those sections to be applied to non-Indigenous prisoners. And the Senate amendments that were rejected uh, actually explicitly said, and in particular, these groups that have grown in numbers and that are particularly subjected to isolation we should be looking at proactive measures, and those were rejected. That sounds really frustrating. How has it been for you going through all of this time and effort to put forward amendments and then having the government reject them? It's very frustrating. Um, it was heartening, though, to see how many people uh, in the Senate in particular, I mean, initially the vote was to vote down the government message, which means that uh, the Senate initially rejected what the uh, House of Commons, the message it sent back, rejecting the Senate amendments. Um, unfortunately, it was the last day that we were sitting, uh, and uh, the pressure that came, two, two things were um, articulated by the government. One, that 
we would end up sitting until well into the summer if we didn't, and it would just, the message would just keep ping-ponging back and forth, that it would go back to the House of Commons, they would reject the Senate amendments again and ship it back. I'm not so sure that's true that that would have happened. And the other was a fear-mongering, that if in fact this wasn't passed, there would be bloodbaths and it would be basically pandemonium in the prisons, which is nonsense. The law would have continued as it is now if that hadn't passed and there would have been an urgent requirement to put in place 15-day caps and the kinds of judicial or um, independent oversight that the courts had reported. But those two messages, then um, there was a call for a stand-up vote and at that time then a number of people who initially voted against the message from the House of Commons voted in favour. Uh, but the speeches, it, I think anybody who's interested in this area should listen to the speeches. Um, the, the speeches in support of um, the Senate amendments, I think, were incredibly strong. Uh, people like Senator Pratt, Senator, Murray Sin Senator Andre Pratt, Senator Murray Sinclair, um, uh, Senator Zerjawayal gave some very compelling arguments as to why we should have accepted them. And we know, you know, I think it's unfortunate and regrettable is probably the kindest way I can refer to it, that the, the Senate did not continue to seize the day and insist on its amendments because now it's left to the Supreme Court of Canada. But the Supreme Court of Canada can look to what the Senate, the discussions in the Senate committee were, as well as in the Senate as a whole when we were considering C-83 and see what in fact the intent was and the fact that it seems to be uh, some this this last-minute pressure that caused it to not go through. And so my hope is that as much as I think we um, did not do, you know, that it, it was our democratic duty to ensure the legislation was constitutional, and I think we have ended up with an unconstitutional piece of legislation, uh, I do think this, the uh, Supreme Court of Canada will correct this, And but I think it's... Um, you know, unfortunate and regrettable that it's been left to the, the courts to fix it when we've, you know, we've passed something that we, we are, were in a position to fix and had tried to fix ourselves. On June 20th, 2019, the Senate of Canada debated changes to Bill C-83. Senators were trying to decide whether they should allow the House of Commons to pass Bill C-83 as it existed at the time, or if additional amendments needed to be made to make the bill constitutional. During this debate, Senators Murray Sinclair, Andre Pratt, and others offered thoughtful contributions to the debate that we thought we would offer to you here. Senator Pratt is a senator representing Quebec and is part of the Independent Senators Group. Before joining the Senate, Senator Pratt was a journalist and authored a number of publications on journalism, politics, and history. Here is an excerpt from his intervention during the Senate's debate on Bill C-83. The question before us today regarding C-83 and the message of the government of the, the other place is whether this chamber will stand up to defend a very small, very vulnerable, very unpopular minority, inmates in federal penitentiaries. I'm not an expert on prison issues. I've only visited jails a couple of times. But I think we can easily imagine what being deprived not only of freedom, 
but of dignity does to a human being. The annual report of the Office of the Correctional Investigator in 2014-2015 described segregation, and I quote, as the most onerous and depriving experience that the state can legally administer in Canada, end of quote. In 1980, the Supreme Court described it, and I quote, as a prison within a prison, end of quote. This is what administrative segregation is, a deprivation of, of dignity. In many ways, it is even a deprivation of humanity. Being deprived of all intimacy, of freedom of movement, of significant contact with other human beings, this is not human, be it for 22 or 20 hours a day. As Justice Benotto of the Ontario Court of Appeal put it, the effect of prolonged administrative segregation is grossly disproportionate, grossly disproportionate treatment because it exposes inmates to the risk of serious and potentially permanent psychological harm. For his part, Justice Lees of the BC Supreme Court stated that the administrative segregation is a form of solitary confinement that places all Canadian federal inmates subject to it to significant risk of serious psychological harm, including mental pain and suffering, and increased incidence of self-harm and suicide. If CD3 is adopted, the situation of segregated inmates may, in the best of circumstances, minimally improve. For the most part, words will change. Structured intervention units, independent decision maker, terms will change, but reality, very little. BC, Bill C83 does not attempt to eliminate the whole from Canadian jails. It tries to put a bow on it and call it something new. It may make us legislators feel slightly better about the treatment of inmates to let their plight reach the back of our, of our minds Next, once again. Here's an excerpt from Senator Murray Sinclair's contributions to the debate. Senator Sinclair was the first Aboriginal judge appointed in Manitoba and Canada's second Aboriginal judge ever. He served as co-chair of the Aboriginal Justice Inquiry in Manitoba and as chief commissioner of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. As head of the TRC, he participated in hundreds of hearings across Canada, culminating in the issuance of the TRC's report in 2015. In this clip, Senator Sinclair helps us understand how lack of meaningful oversight has devastating effects on our most vulnerable. One of the issues that I was thinking of as I was listening to the debate was during the hearings of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, we toured as many of the residential schools that were still standing at the time that the hearings were going on. And in every one of them, there was a small room, usually under a staircase, where the residents would be confined if they were not listening to what the teachers were telling them. And in each of those little rooms, some of them only two or three feet tall, you could see scratch marks on the wall and sometimes even blood stains still on the walls from where the students as children had tried to claw their way out or leave some kind of evidence of their being there. It was incredibly horrible to look at, but it reminded me 
as I was listening to this debate, that when there is not an appropriate judicial oversight or appropriate independent oversight of those decision makers who place people in that position, that that in and of itself is an indication of the inadequacy of the law. And so does this bill provide that kind of guarantee? And I don't think it does. So one thing that I know was discussed was alternatives to the segregation units, which is, you know, just solitary confinement. So, so what do you see as some promising alternatives to um, solitary confinement? Well, I think there are a number of things we can be doing. The transfers out that we talked about that Section 29 allows for people to be transferred out to hospitals if they have mental health issues. Sections 81 and 84 allow for people to be transferred into the community to serve their sentences in culturally appropriate or otherwise appropriate, you know, relevant resources for them. And Section 84 allows for people to be paroled in those places. So those could also be used as alternatives to uh, to solitary confinement and alternatives to isolation within prisons. In addition, uh, we have the recommendation, the recommendations that the correct, the Canadian Association of Elizabeth Fry Societies, working at uh, the time with Native Women's Association as well as with the Canadian Human Rights Commission, were making recommendations about getting rid of segregation altogether for those with mental health issues, uh, as well as for women and for young people. That could be implemented right away. In fact, corrections themselves uh, indicates that they have no more than three, usually, or maybe five women in segregation across the country. Clearly, there could be, instead of investing millions of dollars in new renamed structured intervention units, they could be actually applying those resources to bring in more folks to work with those individuals, to get them out, to support them to be in the community in the first place. And then the the other option that the we asked the Parliamentary Budget Office to to cost at all of those, all of those alternatives were seen, even you know nine hundred dollar a day beds in in mental health or psychiatric hospitals were seen as more effective and more cost effective, uh, most more effective in terms of the human and social result, but also and the mental health result, but also the uh, fiscal result, and. Uh, those were seen as cheaper than putting in these structured intervention units. And then the, the final uh, piece that the correctional or the uh, parliamentary budget officer looked at was a, a pro program called the Breakaway Program that was developed by a man who was considered to be gang affiliated himself, who has worked with others within the prison system, is training other men who have been labeled as security threat group. and. Uh, working with those groups to to implement the breakaway program, and that's Rick Sove and those um, folks who are doing that. That was costed out that it would cost somewhere in the neighborhood of $200,000 per year to implement that across the country. And one of the groups that is most likely to be isolated are those who are considered to be quote-unquote gang-involved or labeled with the security th uh, threat group 
designation. And so those are some options. There are also all kinds of options being looked at internationally that we could be looking at. Um, Norway, for instance, is trying to phase out. Germany is trying to phase out. Colorado is trying to phase out the use of isolation altogether. And, you know, in the, at the United Nations, the recognition has been that at one time, solitary confinement was seen as a progressive and a humane alternative to killing people or to maiming them or to whipping them or other kinds of inhumane tortures. But now it's seen as inhumane. And certainly mental health professionals, psychiatrists, uh, psychologists, those working in, in those fields are increasingly saying that we should be doing what they've done in the mental health system, which is phase out this kind of isolation and these kinds of punitive regimes. Um, across the board. And so I think there are all kinds of options we could be looking to. I think we're only limited by our own creative thinking. Thank you so much for taking the time to discuss this, Kim. Um, do you have any sort of last words for folks if they want to get involved or they want to help make a difference? Uh, yes, they should be. I think everybody should be getting hold of whoever is running for their member of parliament and asking them what their position is on these kinds of issues. Uh, what their position is on alternatives to prison, what their position is on solitary confinement, on things like guaranteed livable income, some of the issues we've talked about, what their party position is, what their individual position is, and, their, and senators in their area, and ask them if they've gone to a prison. If they take a position that is contrary to some of these ideas, ask them when they've, what they've seen when they've been in the prison. If they haven't gone, ex tell them you expect them to go. I think those are great ideas. And in fact, after Bill C-83 passed, a number of the senators who voted against or, or in favor of the Senate amendments and against what the House of Commons did got together and said, let's plan to start going to prisons and doing unannounced visits to look at what's happening in segregation. So these are, this wasn't my idea. These are folks who were, who became enlivened or as my daughter would say woke or anyway, I don't pretend to be able to use that language, but really suddenly woke up to the fact that what's happening in our jails, we have a responsibility about. And so um, are talking about we're we're actually, you know, this morning we were having some meetings with folks from other offices and starting to talk about how do we actually set that up? How do we document what's happening? How do we do our due diligence as senators to um, to try and do the best we can to continue to push for the changes we, we uh, believe need to happen. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Appointed. Please share this podcast with your friends, your favorite coworkers, post about us on social media, and maybe even leave us a comment if you have the chance. Until next time.